Amen. So good to see kids in the sanctuary. Jesus said, forbid not the little ones to come unto me. And so if they're willing to sit there and bear it, <laughs> we're willing to bear with them. <laughs> so, okay, well, let's get started. Uh, we're back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, and by the way, before I forget, please come out and support the baptism. Um, I think we might have one, two baptisms. I think maybe, uh, I know Kristen's getting bapti baptized as part of her church membership. She'll be up here, Lord willing, soon enough. And um, also pray for uh, Emmanuel, my brother, uh, Manny, um, a.k.a. Manny. Uh, pray for his baptism um, as he's decided to, uh, uh, to be baptized and uh, just pray for that time. It's always a, you know, baptism is a means of grace. Uh, it strength, I believe it really strengthens the church. I know all the baptisms I've ever done, and I don't know how many I've done, but all the baptisms we've ever done in our history, uh, you know, we... Uh, uh, you know, we've, I just see it inject life into the church. And uh, so it's just a glorious thing. So if you, can, if you can make it out to that on the 13th at uh, Jason and Carolyn Side's home, uh, they'll have the jacuzzi nice and heated and warm and ready for me, right? That's what, that's what I understand. So I don't have to walk in. We don't have to get into a, you know, a, 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 an ice cube, you know, a whatever. <laughs> it's, it's cold out there. Well, it's really cold today. Um, and I'm sick, so... Man, all kinds of spiritual warfare today. <laughs> but uh, you know what? The message that we're looking at today is so glorious. It's so wonderful. I, 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 this is one I just, I'd rather crawl in than call in. So um, let's pray and uh, we'll get started, okay? Well, Father, um, simply to acknowledge, Lord, uh, what your word says in these marvelous, marvelous scriptures this marvelous text that is set before us. I pray, God, that you would simply open up our eyes and give us ears to hear and instruct us and help us to learn how glorious the gospel is, not only that saves us, but the gospel that we get to proclaim, the gospel that we get to present to others. Lord, I pray that you would show us something of the, of the imputation of Christ of the imputed righteousness of Christ and what that means for our lives, for our everyday lives, and uh, what that means for our, our future and our hope and our standing before you even now, Lord God. I pray that you would help me, God. Give me a mouth to speak your word and give your people ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we didn't read the text, so let me just read it for us. Uh, as you are there, you don't need to stand, but let me just read the text before us. It's, we're looking at verses 20 and 21 today. Verse 20 and 21. This is what the Word of the Lord says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And um, the title of this sermon is entitled Righteous Ambassadors for Christ. It's not just enough to talk about being an ambassador of Christ, a representative of Christ, but the context here is sort of reflexive. It's once you have been justified, once you have been made right with God, then you preach that very righteousness to others. And so it's crucial to understand how a person becomes righteous, becomes justified in the sight of God, and then what it is that we as ambassadors, ambassadors of Christ are to represent, are to preach, are to proclaim to the world. So, he focuses in again on the ministry of reconciliation. Remember verse 19, that's the way he sort of ends the, the verse there. He talks about the word of reconciliation, which, is, which, which really means the message, what reconciliation is all about. That is the ministry that has been committed to the apostles and to his associates and to all believers. By extension, it affects all of us that we all have this glorious ministry of reconciliation. How does God, who is infinitely righteous, infinitely holy, how does God bring into His presence 
and into relationship and into friendship those who are infinitely sinful and guilty and transgressors and furthermore, those who are enemies of God, hostile to God. As Romans 1.30 says, we are enemies of God by virtue of our sin. And so there it is. That is the great dilemma, is it not? Sin. Sin is man's great dilemma. Listen, because of sin, man, the natural man, the unconverted man, the unregenerate man is in the worst possible situation he could ever be in. He is in the worst predicament in the world. It's worse than being in a burning building. It's worse than being in the buildings in 9-11. It's worse than being overtaken by a thief or a murderer. It's worse than being in prison. It's worse than being in a car accident. It's worse than anything that you can imagine. Because it's not with other people that you have a problem. We can handle other people. There's a limited amount of what others can do to us. Oh, they can kill us, sure. Right? We say, well, that's it. I mean, somebody kills you, what more is there? Remember what Jesus said to the disciples, Mark 10. He says, don't fear those who can kill your body and then do nothing else to you. It's like, what else is there to do after you kill my body? But Jesus says, I will tell you who to fear. Fear the one who can not only kill your body, but then cast your body and your soul into hell. Truly, truly, I tell you, I tell you, fear Him. It's a call to fear God because God is a, uh, God is a consuming fire. You know what fire is like? You don't want to get too close to it. You don't want to get too near it, right? Uh, you get too close to the smallest flame, the flame on a, on a lighter. You get too close even to that flame. And you're gripped with fear, the fear of the consequences of being burned. You get too close to a, to a God who is holy, infinitely holy, and if you are not fitted, if you are not prepared, if you don't have the right and the proper clothing, if you would, to stand before this holy God, you will be consumed. And that's why the ministry of reconciliation is so absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial. I love the way that Paul starts this out. He begins by uh, explaining, if you would, the ministry of reconciliation. Notice again verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. It is that the word of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, has rendered us representatives. That's really what this word ambassador speaks of. It means that you stand as a representative, as a spokesman for someone else. And here, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Him. And I want to really focus in on two things, two aspects of being an ambassador of Christ. The need to be godly as an ambassador and the need to be faithful, because both are essential. Back up just a little bit in chapter 5, verse 10, to remember with what sobriety the Apostle Paul executed his ministry. Remember what he said there, chapter 5, verse 10? For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But, we are, but what we are is manifest to God, and I hope that we are manifest in your conscience also. In other words, the reason why we do the ministry with sincerity and holiness and purity, and not, as he talked about earlier in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, being underhanded, peddling the Word of God, the reason why is because there is this fear of the Lord, this fear that one day all ministers of the gospel will stand before the great assize, the great judgment seat of Christ, where every action will have to be recompensed, whether good or bad. And so that sobriety gripped Paul. and said the fear of the Lord had gripped him so that he persuaded others in light of that fear. So, obviously then, there is a need for a godly ambassador, an ambassador that will rightly represent Christ, will rightly take his place, if you would, would rightly be his spokesman and not deal deceptively. You know that that is so rare today in ministry all over the place. 
It's so rare to find ministers and ministries where they preach the Word of God in such an unadulterated way, where they represent the Word of God rightly. Uh, Again, I have to read this, 2 Corinthians 2.17. He says, For we are not like many, peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, which I took to mean something like not just in union with Christ or as a believer in Christ, but in His authority. And then he says, in the sight of God, which sort of prepares us for something like having to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In the sight of God, we do that knowing that God sees all, meaning we, know, we do that knowing that we are accountable to God. That is how we ought to minister. So, being an ambassador of Christ has everything to do with not, not just how and why we speak, but what we say as well. And that's the second point, that we need to also be faithful. Faithful, not just as a, as a godly ambassador for Christ's sake, for His glory, but also faithful in delivering the message of Christ. Obviously, that's what's embedded right here in the meaning of an ambassador. To be an ambassador means that you're a spokesman. You're going to deliver a message on behalf of someone else. Let me read you one, one commentator, what he said. This is David Garland, the uh, New American Commentary. He says, Our modern perception of an ambassador as an official of the highest rank chosen and certified by a government to represent it before another helps us to appreciate the magnitude of Paul's claim. He is Christ's spokesman. He does not act on his own authority, but under the commission of a greater power and authority, one who sent him. And that's what it is. It's that it's not our own authority that we do this. I have no authority in and of myself. My authority can only come from God. My authority can only come from the Word of God. That's it. That's all I have to offer is what's in this book. I can appeal to sinners on behalf of what is written in this book, God's book. Written, it's, it's written in His book, and it's based on His authority. And that's what the ministry of reconciliation is all about. The gospel is ours to proclaim, but it's not ours to manipulate. It's not ours to edit. It's not ours to adjust somehow, to make it more palatable for people to accept it more readily. No. Listen, I want to convince sinners with the truth. Because you know what you get in the end? You get people converted with the truth. And what you convince people with is what you will have to keep them with. And if I convince people with other auxiliary things to the Word of God, then I have to keep them with those things. If I get people to make a profession of faith in Christ because of some gimmick or some program or some product or some show or some skit or some drama or some new technology or some new methodology, some new psychology or philosophy, you will have to keep them with that. You know, we live in a consumer-driven age, right? We love to purchase things. I do. I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I love purchasing new stuff. I love new stuff. It smells good, smells right, especially new cars, New car smell is incredible, isn't it? I don't know. How do they do that? must be in the wrapping or something. But it just goes to show that we do live in such a consumer-driven age. And it's so easy for the church to acquiesce, to say, well, if if we want to get people in the door the way Best Buy gets people in the door, well, then we have to become like Best Buy. We have to put out new products. We have to put out new advertisement. We have to do all. We have to do whatever we have to do the, the, the worst thing about buying a new car, you know what it is. It's the salesman, right? You can't get out of your car before you got four guys already mobbing you and telling you what to buy. And uh, sadly, that's what we do today in the modern church is we, 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 we succumb to the consumer-driven mentality and we end up adjusting our message, adjusting the gospel, lowering the offense of the cross, lowering the offense of the gospel, making the gospel less what Paul called foolish in the sight of, an, of, of the natural man and trying to explain away the gospel in ways that he can readily understand. But see, this means that we have to know the gospel. 
This means we have to know what we're talking about if we're going to present it to others. If we are to be a godly and faithful ambassador to Christ, then we need to know what we're talking about. We need to know what the gospel is. That means we have to do our due diligence and be men and women of the Word of God. Men and women of the Word. I remember um, uh, here recently, my, my wife and my brother, they've been going across the street to a convalescent home visiting old folks there, the convalescent home, just ministering to them, talking to them, just, just you know, visiting them, doing what James 127 talks about. But I remember visiting an, in an old convalescent home that we used to visit back in Southern California. We always go in there and we'd visit this dear old saint, this woman by the name of Naomi. She was probably 95 years old. And uh, that woman knew so much scripture, it was amazing. At 95, she was sitting in that bed. She, she, she could hardly get out of bed, but she could sit there and she'd just rattle off scriptures. Wham! And she's just rattling off the Word of God. And I just thought there, I just, it would bring tears to my eyes. And I thought, Lord, please let me die like that. Please let me die if I'm going to grow old like that. Please let me die like that woman in old age, just filled with the Word of God, filled with the knowledge of God. And sadly today... We are, if we are honest with ourselves, so lazy with the Word of God. No time to memorize Scripture. No time for serious Bible study where we put all distractions away and focus all of our energy in on the Word of God and deliver with great force mental energy in order to, 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 to gain the knowledge of God. You know, Scripture is full of exhortations for us to grow, brothers and sisters, in this area. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God or the word of truth. And you might say, well, yeah, but that's Paul talking to Timothy. Timothy's a pastor, therefore that doesn't apply to me. Well, you're not off the hook so easy. There's a lot more on this very thing. The, the author of Hebrews to the entire congregation says this, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. You see that? If you're only, if you're only dealing with the milk of the word, if you're only in the shallow end of the pool all the time, when someone throws you into the deep end of the pool, you're not going to know how to swim. You see, he goes on to say, that person is an infant. He's an infant. But solid food is for the mature. So in other words, the author of Hebrews expects the congregation to grow. To grow. If you've been a Christian for a while, you ought to grow. It would be like little Jackson. We brought up, I told you I'd use him as an illustration. It'd be like bringing little Jackson up here 17 years later and still holding him up on our, on our we'd be like, oh, something went wrong here. Jackson ought to have grown by now. He ought to, you know, got rid of the diapers and the, and the bib and all that. That's exactly what's wrong with Christians who don't grow. It is, uh, it's dysfunction. It's abnormal. You've been a Christian for how many years and you still don't know basic elementary doctrines of the Christian faith? These things ought not to be. And, and it's very practical, too. Uh, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, he says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained, and there I think their spiritual senses trained to discern good and evil. Now you don't want to be deceived in this life by good and evil or evil, right? You want to be able to cut through the dis and discern and cut through the deception and the lies. We're, le we're living in deception very deceptive times. We're living in an age of utter deception. We're living in the age of postmodernism, where we're being told that there is no such thing as truth, ultimate absolute truth. We're living in the age of evolution, obviously, where man is taught from the youngest age that he is nothing but a primate, no, primate, no different than an animal, a monkey, or an insect. He's just a, he's just a higher form of evolved life. That's it. Okay, And then we're supposed to act moral. <laughs> I don't know how people expect being taught and trained and brainwashed into thinking they're nothing but animals, but then when they act like animals, why do people get upset? If it's survival of the fittest, 
What's wrong with me taking everything that belongs to me in this life, regardless of who I have to crush on my way there to get it? For the apostle, he saw himself, therefore, as a godly, faithful, or he at least aspired. This is what he envisions, a godly and faithful ambassador of Christ who doesn't deal underhandedly and who handles the word of God accurately. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Grow in grace and in knowledge. In grace and in knowledge. But there's a... I want to focus now on the appeal itself. Go back there to 1 Corinthians 5.20, where he says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And I want to point out just several elements here of the appeal itself. Number one, the instruments of the appeal. What are the instruments that God uses? Well, that's us. But I say this only to say, brothers and sisters, that this has sort of a twofold implication. Number one, if you are the instrument, the agent through which God preaches or God appeals to sinners, then that means that that's all you are. You are not primary. You are secondary. You are simply the means through which God preaches His Word to others. You're just what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Nothing, he says. They are nothing. He says, in fact, we are merely servants. We're servants through whom you believed. And that's what he, that's what he sought to prove, that he was merely the instrument of God. But listen, don't think that that means that what goes on through you when God chooses to make his appeal through you to others, don't think for a moment that what that is is somehow lessened. No, it is the very word of God, it is the very work of God that is flowing through you. I think that's amazing, and what an incredible privilege that is. To know that when you speak and when you preach the gospel to others, that that is God at work through you. You have no need to question that ever. That if you've articulated the gospel properly, if you share the gospel with someone accurately, you have no doubt whatsoever in your mind that God is using you. He says in 1 Thessalonians much the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. But you see, the word of God came through men. It is our great privilege to stand in the place of Christ as ambassadors, spokesmen, representatives of Christ, and to preach what it really is, the Word of God. And we don't ever have to question that when we're sharing with our family members or our neighbors, and we, we've, we've mustered up the courage to speak the Word of God to them, that that is God's very Word that we're speaking and that God is using that Word to accomplish His ends. Is this our perspective? Is this the perspective that we carry on the way to evangelism, on the way to the family reunion? We just got done with Christmas, right? Some of you have, were with family and it was great. Some of you, it's kind of like force-feeding, right? I mean, you got to you got to muster it up to go and be with those family members sometimes, right? Because they don't know who you are. They, don't, they can't figure you out. You have no fellowship, and that's because of the gospel. Don't be discouraged, but be confident that if you share with them that God is going to speak right through you. And how should we speak? What does this appeal consist of? But before we get to the content of it, I want to talk about the manner of it. And I thought, you know, why don't we take our example from God Himself? Maybe at this point, God's appeal to, to Israel can be quoted. Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning of verse 31, God says this. This is the way He begged them, appealed to them, if you would. He says, cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? 
for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. That's the essence of our appeal. Our, the essence of our appeal is to show the sinner the danger of sin. So that sin right now that you so enjoy, that sinful lifestyle that you are so taking in, drinking in like water, it's toxic and it will kill you. And so we should make our appeal like God does by warning them of their sin, by, by telling them, look, forsake your, your iniquities, your transgressions, get them far from you. Have a new heart, new spirit, which is just simply Old Testament, Old Covenant talk for New Covenant, New Testament theology of regeneration. It was this that God wanted in His appeal to see men and women regenerate and having a new heart, having a new spirit put within them through repentance and faith. But there's another element here, and that is that Christ is central to everything in the appeal. Notice what the text goes on to say. He says, it is as if God were making His appeal through us. We beg you, and then he just he has to put this in here, on behalf of Christ. But he already talked about Christ. But he's going to talk about Christ again to just show us the utter Christ-centeredness of the gospel. That there is no appeal without Christ. We do this on His behalf. Who are you representing? Christ. And so when you're preaching the gospel to someone, there should be no mistake whatsoever who sent you to do that, by what authority you're doing that, for whose glory you're doing that for. It is for Christ. It is on His behalf. You are His representative so that people should walk away from that conversation thinking, that person came here to talk to me about Jesus Christ. Can you believe it? How dare they? <laughs> Let them be offended if they must, but let them be offended knowing that you came there as a representative, as a spokesman of the Lord Jesus Christ, not yourself, not your church, not your you know, pet doctrine, but that you came there to tell them about Christ on behalf of Christ. Next, the, the, the third thing that I want to focus in on this appeal is the incentive of peace. That's what reconciliation is all about. Look at what he says here. He says, uh, he says we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the sinner's greatest need right there. That is a person's greatest need is to be reconciled to God so that hostility where there used to be enmity, is replaced with peace and favor and friendship so that you no longer think of God as an enemy, someone who's out to get you. You think of God as a friend who's out to bless you, to bless you. And not to bless you in any, in any cheap grace kind of way, not in any moralistic way. The man upstairs will take care of me. I'm talking about real blessing from God. Blessing you with salvation. Blessing you with a future in glorification. Blessing you with union with Christ and fellowship through the Spirit. These are the blessings of God. You know, it's amazing. Having been reconciled to God, brothers and sisters, we are blessed and highly favored of our God. That's what reconciliation is. It means that God has been rendered favorably disposed to us. Think about it. His attitude towards us has changed. No longer is God viewing you as a judge ready to throw down the gauntlet. But now He sees you as a father ready to discipline you if you must, but, but ready and willing and longing to love you and bless you and shower you with His grace. It is His pleasure, Jesus said, to give you the kingdom. He takes great delight in blessing His children. And that's what the ministry of reconciliation is all about. That's the essence of it. The essence of what we should be telling people is, look, there is peace at stake here. And what we're talking about, in essence, are the components of the gospel call. 
So if you pick up a systematic theology, if you pick up a theological book that talks about the call of the gospel, it has to have these different components. You have to talk about the sinfulness of man. You have to talk about salvation in Christ through the cross. And you have to offer them pardon, forgiveness. Show them that the gospel is pregnant with forgiveness. Show them that the gospel is abounding in mercy and grace and pardon and forgiveness if they would but have it. And the other thing is to show them the great promises that that entails to be forgiven. Look, look back at uh, chapter 5 one more time in verse 18. Paul has already been weaving this whole, or excuse me, 19 again. He's been weaving this whole thing. Um, maybe we can start in 18. He says, All these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is the promise, that your sin will not be counted against you on, on the day of judgment. Isn't that remarkable? That you can... You can live with a pure conscience, that you can live at peace with God, no longer at war, at enmity with God, frightened and terrified of what will happen to me. Everybody knows this. Everybody believes this. There is no one who does not believe that they are accountable to God. They have numbed themselves, or they have calloused their hearts, or they have deceived themselves but on the authority of God's Word, I can stand here today and tell you when you plead these things with people, listen, you are testifying to what they already know. God has shown it to them. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. God has proven it to them. I don't ever prove the existence of God to anybody. I don't ever sit them down and say, well, how do you know God exists? And I don't start going down the list. Well, you know, we've, got some, we've found some real old rocks and we found some real old manuscripts and we've dug up some real old houses and, you know what I mean, that sounds like a lot of good proof. No. Either I believe the Word of God or I don't. The Word of God says everyone knows that there's a God. My job is just to show them what happens to them when they deny the God they know exists. And when they sin against them and when they harden their hearts against them. And so when we plead with people, know that. Know that God has already put within them the knowledge of God. Just bank on the promises of God. Just bank on the fact that it's in there. It's in their conscience. Their conscience smites them. It's that objective witness on the stand that stands there and says, yep, he did that. Yep, he's guilty. Yep, I remember he did that. You can't do away with your conscience. The more I study the conscience, the more fascinating it gets. Now let's move on to the message of reconciliation explained. He explains the ministry, and now he focuses in on the message. If you would, he's almost working backwards here. Look at verse 21. He says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Such a small verse and so many just components, right? In, through, Him, to be, our behalf. This is the gospel. I believe this is one of, one of Paul's finest moments in all of Scripture. He sums up with great specificity what the gospel is all about. And I want to show you that as we keep going here. But first, just to, just to, to stress that the, the peace that comes to, to sinners is based on imputation, based on the imputed righteousness of Christ, based on the fact that God does not count, it does not impute sin to us. Though Paul doesn't use the literal word imputation, he certainly is thinking along those lines. When he uses the word count, legizomai is a term found in the theological word group of the doctrine of imputation. It means this, that God 
Well, well there's, a, there's a couple things. There's several imputations in the Bible, right? There are three. The imputation of Adam's sin to all of humanity, to all of his posterity, to everybody that he represents. And then there is the imputation of sinners to Christ on the cross. When God imputed sin to Christ on the cross, he, he reckoned him, he credited Christ with our sin. And then the third imputation is this, that the very righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. It's so marvelous. It's so grand. Imputation and justification go hand in hand. This is how God sets man right. It's not because of anything he has done. It's not because of anything that resides in him. He doesn't have the tools. He doesn't have the resources. He doesn't have the ability. But God does. He has all the above. God does. God has the tools, the resources, the ability. It's His righteousness. When we are credited with this righteousness, it is His righteousness. But now first, I want you to see there's two imputations here. The first one, the first imputation is the imputation that was put to Christ, where He took upon Himself the sin of his people. And where does the background come to all this? Where does Paul derive this imputation theology? Does it come from Greek mythology or paganism? Or does it come, where does it come from? I would submit to you that it comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Old Testament theology. In the Old Testament, and especially when you look at Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 53, God's suffering servant, that is the Messiah, he, he works along the lines of imputed righteousness and imputed sin. He suffers on behalf of his people. He is counted as a sinner, Isaiah 53, 12. He dies in their place, talking about their substitu his substitutionary work, Isaiah 53, 5. He is beaten with the wrath that we deserve, verses 6 through 8 thereby removing the wrath from us, Isaiah 53, 11. You see, Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus has come to do what the first Adam failed to do. He succeeds where Adam fails. Let me read that very thing to you. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. After Paul goes through verses 12, really verse 12 all the way to verse 19 is Paul's entire section there on this whole issue of imputation of the righteousness of Christ, of the sin of Adam. And this is where he, uh, he, 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 he sort of concludes his thought. He says in verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned, through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will, re will reign in life through the one, leaving no mystery, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? What did the imputed sin of Adam produce? Death. What does the imputed righteousness of Christ produce? Life. Death is reigning just look around. Death is reigning. And, and not to be, you know, not to be um, sarcastic, but every time I get sick, I really do think death is reigning. It is evidence. You know, last couple days, I woke up with a really bad sore throat. And um, it just reminded me again, death is reigning. We live in a world where death reigns. A couple weeks ago, my dog died. She died in my hands. She died on my kitchen table. I was trying to pump life back into her body, and I couldn't. I couldn't give her life. And I just saw the life drain out of this, this being, this animal. I, was, I know we called her baby, and she's not a human baby, but it, it's a creature. It's God's creature. And it was so sad. I wept, I wept like a baby. It's so sad. I sat there, and I watched life just, just, just kind of just leak out of this, this creature right in front of my eyes. And I just thought, why do things have to die like that? Why does it have to be that your pets die, let alone your parents, your, your, your loved ones, your family members? Why, does, why is there death? A lot of times when I'm open-air preaching in the middle of 
either UNT, the university up there, or out in the streets, and I hear people mocking, I'll, re- I'll respond with a simple question. Do you have an answer for death? Who has an answer for death? Except for the one who put an end to death, who defeated death. It is only through this one that life will reign, that life will reign. I want to show you, if you follow back in verse 21 with me, just the incredible symmetry of all of this. Look at, what, look at how comprehensive the genius of Paul is, okay? All of us right now, real exegetical focus, okay? Look at this verse, what he says. He, if you break it down, everything that's implied here is just fascinating, He says first, he made him. Let's stop there. Who made him? God. God the Father is the agent, the active agent who, number one, initiates salvation, initiates redemption by offering up his son. And then it says, he made him who knew no sin. The fact that he knew no sin speaks of Jesus' moral purity, His moral impeccability, the spotless Lamb of God with no blemish, sinless. And then He says, to be sin. That shows the imputation involved, that He was credited or reckoned with sin. He wasn't morally sinful Himself. He wasn't morally polluted Himself. You know, it's like this. When you stand before a judge and he pronounces you guilty, He doesn't make you evil. He doesn't create immorality in you by announcing and pronouncing you guilty. In the same way, when Christ was pronounced guilty on our behalf, He did not become morally evil. Okay? And that's why when God pronounces us righteous, we do not become morally good. Morally good. So he says to be sin. This shows the realistic imputation that is involved. It actually took place. This was no theory. This is not theoretical theology here. This is what God really did. This is what God put to his charge. And then look at this. He says, on our behalf, who per hemon. That little phrase means, speaks about Christ's substitutionary death. That he volunteered to be your substitute if you're in Christ. Your substitute, if you will have him, if you will repent of your sin and have him, he would be your substitute. And he also gives us the purpose, so that, this is a purpose clause, this this sort of shows the sovereign design of the atonement. This is what the design is all about, that uh, his sacrifice would indeed obtain the redemption that it paid for. His blood was not shed for nothing. When His blood was shed, it actually obtained what it purchased. And when you look at the study in the Old Testament, again, the Old Testament is very crucial here. When you look at the Old Testament, nothing that was ever redeemed, when you look at that word, nothing that was ever ransomed or redeemed failed to be obtained. God obtains what He redeems. He doesn't redeem it and then just leave it there. No, no. God paid for it. He's going to take it. It's His. So He procures, He secures our redemption. It's beautiful. Then it goes on to say, we, that we might become the righteousness of God. So this explains how redemption could be obtained. Namely, because we have been justified. We have been granted a new status a new uh, a status making us beneficiaries of divine righteousness. This is what blew my mind when I was studying this. It's not just that God says, you're pretty good. No, you're, you're even really good. I'll give you a lot of righteousness. I'll, I, will, I will see you as very righteous. No, it is the righteousness of God himself. That's amazing. And then lastly, sort of bringing the whole thing to a conclusion. He starts with Christ and he ends with Christ. He says, it's in Him. So this grounds the whole work of redemption in union with Christ. Boy, it's amazing. 
And that leads to the second imputation, namely the the imputation of the righteousness of God given to us freely by faith through Jesus Christ. If you would, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Talk about the analogy of the faith. Talk about what the Reformers call the... the, the, the analogy of the faith basically symbolizing how Scripture proves Scripture. How do you go to find out the meaning of Scripture? Scripture! Scripture is, you know, that we sing that hymn, God is His own interpreter. Amen. And how does God interpret Himself? Through His Word. Look at Philippians 3.9. Paul says, after he said, look, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've been this religious, I've you know, maybe in our vernacular today, right? I pray, I, I, I was religious, I, I went to church, I was raised in a Christian home, I was homeschooled. But look at what, after that, if he says, no, look, I, all that stuff is rubbish compared to gaining Christ. And he says in verse 9, that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. You cannot be justified by keeping rules. He says, but that, that which is through faith in Christ, this is amazing, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, it is from God. It is His own righteousness. The very righteousness that He requires is the very righteousness that He gives, His own divine righteousness. As Daniel put it, He came to usher in Jesus' everlasting righteousness, to make us righteous. This is the righteousness which man cannot obtain on his own. This is the righteousness which the law cannot give us. This is the righteousness that no amount of law-keeping could ever gain us before God. It's amazing. It's only because of what God has done. This is what 1 Corinthians 1.30 is all about. Colossians chapter 1 verse 12 says, God is the one who qualified you to have an inheritance with the, with the people of God, with the children of God in light. This righteousness, though, has also been committed to us, brothers and sisters, in the ministry of reconciliation. This is what we get to preach to others, that, that, that if they're willing to cast their sin aside if they're willing to forsake and to turn from their sin, they can be absolutely made right in the sight of God through what God did at the cross. And then we can even tell them, look, if you would but repent of your sin, that's going to drag you down into hell, down into eternal perdition. If you would but release that, let that go, repent of that, turn from that. And God will give you everlasting peace, everlasting peace, so that you can can have God no longer just as your judge, but God as your friend, God as your father, as your husbandman, the one that loves you and will take care of you and will lavish you with his grace and his mercy and his peace. But you know what the problem is, is that today people want to skip the first part of that and go right to the promises. They come to God, God will give you peace and joy, and, and God will make you happy and prosperous and give you money, and, 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 and everything will be great. Most of that's not even true. You come to God, your, your life may get a ten times worse in the sake of circumstance, with, with reference to your circumstances. God, God may turn your life upside down to such a degree that you lose everything for following Him. The disciples did. They followed Christ, and they even had to tell Him, Jesus, look, we left everything to follow you. What do we get? What do we get out of it? Jesus probably stood there thinking, if only you knew what you're going to get. You will inherit the earth. And that is the promise of reconciliation, brothers and sisters, that we are not just going to inherit, you know, a small plot of land somewhere in the Middle East, but that we are going to inherit the world. That's what God promised Abraham, that he would be an heir of the whole world. The whole universe is going to belong to you. And that's why it is absolutely 
to your spiritual advantage to forsake whatever portion that you're trying to hold on to in this life. That's why Jesus said, if you don't hate your life in this world, you can't be my disciple. It's that serious. It's what the, it's what the Puritans called self-annihilationism. Not annihilation by doctrine of hell. But they were trying to stress, listen, you must loathe yourself in order to be loved by God. It's not until you see yourself as miserable. It's not until you see yourself in the most wretched condition, as Scripture talks about, where your righteousness, whatever righteousness you can stack up, is like filthy rags in the sight of God. Only then will you flee to the cross for a righteousness that is outside of you, foreign, alien righteousness. I need a righteousness I can't do. I need a righteousness I've never had. I need a righteousness my Christian parents can't give me. I need a righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ alone. I need a righteousness that comes not from law-keeping, but that comes from God and is freely given to us by union with Christ. Amen? That's the gospel. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, so glorious is the gospel. Please forgive us for forgetting how glorious it is. Please forgive us, Lord, in the times that we neglect it. Please forgive us in the times that we think that this life is about pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, only to find out that we are a million light years away from gaining any ground with God. It's only by the righteousness of Christ. It's only because of the merits of your Son. And you set it up that way, Lord, for one magnanimous reason. You set it all up that way for one ultimate purpose so that you would receive all of the glory. Father, we do pray that you would be glorified. Please save sinners through heritage grace. Please bring many, many poor and bankrupt sinners to this place. Please, God, Jesus says, I did, not, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And God, please bring us those that are, that are going to acknowledge their poverty. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. God, I, I, I just pray that you would do such a work, Lord, through the preaching here, through the ministry here, through the families here, Lord, of sharing this great news of reconciliation, that you are willing to make sinners right with you, that you are willing to give them peace with God through Jesus Christ. Lord, that's our desire as a church. Our desire is to be used for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.